0: From the hills of Central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. If there's one thing turfgrass professionals all share is interest in the weather. Weather is the day-to-day state of the atmosphere, and climate is the weather averaged over time. I've been chatting with my guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking, Professor Art D. Gaetano of Cornell University for over 20 years about the weather, and of course, climate. Art was a guest last year, and we decided that with the release of the 2018 Climate Assessment Report, it was a good time to sit down and chat about climate and impacts on the golf industry. Our conversation discussed the ambitions of the Climate Assessment Report, how long until the new normal climate settles in, and finally, how to understand climate in order to inform infrastructure decisions. Those decisions range from building an irrigation system to redoing or extending car paths, so that good long-term resilient systems can be built. As we discuss, adaptation that never ends is the new norm. Now, the National Climate Assessment is a United States government interagency ongoing effort on climate change science conducted under the auspices of the Global Change Research Act of 1990, signed by Republican President George H.W. Bush. The National Climate Assessment is a major product of the U.S. Global Change Research Program, which coordinates a team of experts and receives input from a federal advisory committee. National climate assessment research is integrated and summarized in the mandatory ongoing national climate assessment reports. The reports are extensively reviewed by the public and experts, including federal agencies and a panel of the National Academy of Sciences. The fourth national climate assessment was released in two volumes in October 2017 and the one we're discussing on this episode in November 2018.
1: The National Climate Assessment report is actually mandated by Congress. Uh, it's, it's been mandated for probably over over a decade now that uh, that these reports have to be released in a timely manner. So it was one in a series of reports. It's the fourth one that's been released since uh, I, I forget when the late '90s I think was when they came out. Mm. Um, so. Um, Basically, it's a it's a collaboration. Basically, each of the chapters the, in, that are part of the report are actually have an author that's from the federal government and also from somebody outside of the government. Mm-hmm. So really brings in a lot of scientists, both from academia and also, also the government.
0: And, and before you go on to the other parts of this, l- let me just be clear for the continued climate deniers that love to listen to the program just to be able to give me a hard time when they see me out on the road. Um... It's hard to uh, appreciate, unless you look at this document, the amount of people. I mean, to think about something that um, a conspiracy that would be this vast uh, or even that this many people could be duped by a, a miscalculation or if there's such widespread misassumptions being made to me, continues to be uh, unfathomable. Do you feel like that when you look at all the people involved, that just that simple number would say, this is completely ridiculous to deny that these things are occurring?
1: Yeah, well, I I guess uh, I'll answer that by saying you're talking to one of them, right? So I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm part of that crew and, you know, with, with my colleagues from a, from a broad number of disciplines and things like that yeah the, the consensus is amazing and and you need that to put together a report like this and things like that 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 doesn't mean though as time goes on that you know just like good scientists we, we tweak our research and 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 find the problems and find the errors and I mean we've been talking about this warming for 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 many decades now and I think a lot of the you know I, I hate to say it but a lot of it is is done there but when we start to talk about maybe some of the more interesting things, uh, changes in extremes, uh, Mm -hmm. what the ocean is doing where Mm -hmm. the science isn't quite there yet, you know, that's still developing. And some of that comes out in the report as well.
0: And so when we look at a report like this and we see the various areas that it touches, it does seem ambitious, for this group of folks, that uh, originally it's got to be NOAA based, right? Based in in, in, the, in the NOAA agency. Yeah, I was going to say NOAA plays
1: a big part in it, but they're they're not the only one. One of the neat things about the the National Climate Assessment is clearly a cross agency report. I mean, a, a lot of the work that I I did for them behind the scenes was actually through the Agriculture Department because we we you know had contributed to the the um, the ag chapter. So, I mean, it's right. not just NOAA. That's why you see a lot of the impacts That's correct. and things like that.
0: And that was the point I was trying to get to was that the document, <clears throat> even though it's under climate assessment, it's uh, really ambitiously attempting to explain The impacts of the changing climate on things like agriculture, infrastructure, society, uh, the economic systems, communities, energy dynamics, all of these things are going to be touched by it. But the real point I want you to answer for me is they were wrong. It's happening appears to be happening faster than they originally projected. That's the thing about science, as you said, we can be wrong. And it seems like in this case, the data is indicating it's happening faster. yeah, I, I don't
1: I, I guess I, I I don't know if I'd necessarily say they were wrong. If you looked at any of the projections through time, you you expect to see this type of acceleration of climate change mm. as as things go on. I think we're right, kind of, um, on the cusp of, of really seeing some, you know, more dramatic changes than we've seen in the past. Um, it's kind of the idea, I think we probably talked about this the last time I was on, you know, the climate system is huge. You have all the oceans you have. It's more than just the atmosphere. And, and that system, for lack of a better word, has, has inertia, right? It takes time to respond, just like when you step on the gas of your car, you know, you don't automatically go, you know, up to 60, but you, you, have, to, you have to accelerate to that. The climate and adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere is very analogous to that.
0: So, Art, when we look back at this climate assessment report, and and again, the breadth of the things that are covered, one of the things that that struck my fancy was uh, infrastructure. And it was the one I focused on because I think as far as golf and large green spaces, we become oasis so to speak, for places where stormwater is going to be a bigger issue. Having this wide expanse of green space that you can manipulate to encourage infiltration will serve like a funnel in many urban areas for that water coming through. But when I read it, and I didn't get through the 1,500 pages or even the 180-page brief report that came out, the thing that struck me was this one line. Adaptation is one of those things we face as a society that's not going to have an end point. And I have to say, when you design roads and buildings and big things that we've talked about, take long time to build and have to adjust for long periods, how do you build anything knowing that it's probably always going to have to be rebuilt in pretty quick time frames? So this is the thing I think should concern us all as, as a society is... How do you even build systems that can tolerate that kind of situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head on, you know, Coming, coming out with that as the take-home message from the report, I think, is key. So, two things: it's never going to end in terms of adaptation. It's kind of the opposite of what I used in my dump truck example. When you step on the brake, <laughs> it doesn't stop automatically; it keeps on going. So that's why, even if we uh, do things differently in terms of, of of how we how we release greenhouse gases, what we use as our fuel sources, we're still going to be tied into a certain amount of change that we're going to have to
0: adapt to. And is it reasonable to expect any slowing of the emissions is going to change what's about to happen?
1: I wish I could say that, but the data don't bear that out, actually. If if you, you look at the recent emissions of greenhouse gases globally, it's it's been going up, it's been going at a at a higher rate than has has been expected or, or that we saw over the last 10 or so years.
0: When we look at that emission increase, you see it associated with the larger population centers, right, of China, India, where a fair amount of the human population lives. And there is some evidence that in the United States we're not as in- increasing as rapidly. Is that true? Sure, it's not necessarily just the
1: number of people, but it's what those economies, what those countries are trying to do. Uh, right? They're trying to increase their standard of living. They're trying to increase their their production. And, and part of that to to achieve that, you you have to burn fossil fuels and and release the carbon into the atmosphere.
0: And it does seem odd that much of the developed world is now looking at the developing world, if that's the terminology we choose to use for this conversation, not meeting anything other than economic development stuff. Uh, It seems a bit disingenuous for all of us that have enjoyed this to now say to other cultures, nah, you shouldn't probably do this. You probably ought to think of restricting it we probably could be a little bit better at that. Do you think that's really at the crux of what a lot of people get aggravated about with regard to climate is that they don't believe we should live our lives uh, unabated and 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 that might be the crux of why there's denying?
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I kind of even use that example in my class. Is it really, you know, are we really denying what's happening or are we really denying what the solution to the problem is, right? It's It's kind of... You know, you, you, you have a disease or something if I use something medically, but you're afraid of the side effects, so you don't, you don't do the treatment. And I think that we become accustomed to our standard of living. We, we have what we want, and, and making changes, you know, to, to solve the climate problem requires everybody making changes.
2: Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com.
0: One of the things that we noticed this particular year, right, we, we actually experienced some drought in the Northeast. We were on the drought map in June of 2018. Um, the Mid-Atlantic uh, is, is uh, I've heard stats, uh, well into the 60s, the wettest year ever. And from a golf perspective, 44 out of 52 weekends had rain in it, which se- severely diminishes the amount of time people play golf. In fact, when you do models, weather models, looking at playable hours of golf, you see they're down 20 to 30 percent right in the mid-Atlantic. So then you go to other parts of the country where they had some of the warmest weather uh, they've ever had in 125 years of weather record keeping. We talk about mitigating the climate on large scales when we talk about infrastructural things and golf courses and stormwater stuff, but. 2018, man. So what do you say about adaptation with no end point when you see a year where, uh, you know, you have to deal with these climate extremes across the country?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think in in some cases, and particularly we start to talk about rainfall and temperature extremes, those kind of ends of the distribution, Mm -hmm. so to speak. That's something I think that we have to become more and more aware of. There's a growing body of evidence that says, even though as the climate is changing we might see these these kind of changes in extremes. And it has to do with how, how the warming of the climate is kind of interacting with the jet stream. So again, I think it's just more resilience. We have to look at, at both sides of the, you can't put all your eggs in one basket type of thing. So in planning, um, I think as time goes on, we're, we're going to need to see both of those things, and, and particularly seasonally, because if we look at rainfall, and the report brings that out as well. Most of the increase in rainfall that's expected is actually in the winter and the spring. And actually, if you you look at the summertime, um, the the chances of drying are are much greater. Actually, you know, we see increased drying. So mm-hmm. there's an example. Depending on where you are in the season, in the growing season, you kind of do have to not only worry about irrigation, but but drainage right. early so, on.
0: So so again, you know, you taught me enough for me to hopefully be able to ask an intelligent question. People say, well, you know, it's El Nino, La Nina. These things are going to happen naturally. And what does the climatology say about? Uh, the impact of these you know as you say the climate is more than just the atmosphere it's the oceans it's right everything. it's the landform. it's everything that's out there and it's all sort of being impacted i think a lot of people just focus on the atmosphere so so how how do you uh sort of look at that and you know make some adaptation decisions yeah.
1: I mean, again, going back to the science, one of the things we've been seeing is that weather systems, you're going to weather, actually are more persistent. They move slower. So you, that's, that would give you your extended droughts or even your, your cold periods that you're saying. The other thing that we see is, is the jet stream becomes more wavy. So um, again, those of you in, in New York will see that even this week where we're going to go from kind of one extreme to the other within a couple of days, but we've also seen that on monthly or annual timescales. Yeah. So I think we just have to say that that's you know that's that's what we have to be prepared for, and in, in situations like drainage, mm-hmm. take that into account.
0: So, with a perennial crop like turf um one of the things we're seeing and I see it a lot in the transition zone I get to travel in that area between St Louis and DC you know where where you have uh, c4 grasses that do well under warm conditions uh, also c3 grasses that are needed um, during the cooler times of year and what we're seeing is the line for warm season grasses coming up but just as we're seeing that the polar vortex comes sure. so so you know may, even even you know adapting perennial systems is not so easy. We've talked about how this cold air sort of leaks down a little bit. But if you had to give advice, if a a golf course in the transition zone hired you as a climatologist, would you even begin to know how to tell them when would be a good time to start planting these grasses, that they're yeah. going to survive the winter?
1: Yeah, you, you hit a good point, because we think about climate change and we think of it going to another level, and in some cases, that's what it's going to be. But we happen to be in the thick of it right now, right? We're in that we're in that time frame in transitioning from the old climate to the new climate. So that's kind of exactly what you're describing, right? It's We're, we're, we're getting to that new level. So you see more of this variation, you see changes from year to year, particularly in the transition zone. Um, So I guess my answer to your question more directly, it's really timeframe that you have to worry about things for longer term. If you're, you're putting in drainage systems or irrigation systems, I'd say, don't worry about the year to year variations now, but this is what it's going
0: to be like 10 or 20 years from now. These are tough uh, things to sell. I mean, putting greens are enormously expensive. Athletic fields are enormously expensive built to be perennial, and on golf courses where they were built 100 years ago, they're almost viewed as sacred to the game, right, the sort of palaces that they play the game on. Uh, these are, you know, t- to even transition to another grass sometimes could be considered uh, blasphemous. So these are really hard decisions to make and and tough things to do. Uh, when are we going to get this new climate? Yeah. And, and when we get the new climate, is the new climate going to be stable or is the new climate going to be like this?
1: So I, I, I can't <laughs> answer the question if the new climate is going to be stable because a lot of that <laughs> depends upon what we're going to do. But to kind of give you an example, I think it's a piece of data that really is, I think it's the most striking to me who looks at data all the time. Um, if we look like any, pretty much pick your favorite spot in the country, when we get to a year like between 2040 and 2050, What we're going to call a cold year in that time frame is going to be warmer than any year we've seen in the past. So think about that. What we perceive as being a cold year is going to be warmer than any year that you or I have seen in our lifetime. So that's really, you know, and you look at any of the any of the models, the the different ways that you might emit greenhouse gases, that really 2040-2050 20, 20, period is really the marked transition between things happening very differently than than we've been accustomed
0: to in the and the, And and there's really very little you could see us doing now uh, politically or even uh, economically, uh, adaptations in our large-scale, particularly energy use, that's going to slow that?
1: It's not. If we
0: stop tomorrow, would that
1: model change? We still see that. I mean, we would, you know, again... It's that inertia. So we would start to see things maybe tempering down in you know later in the century. But that 2040, 2050 is pretty much a
0: lock. And so what I've learned from chatting with you for twenty years now on Thursday mornings during the growing season is to learn to look for signals, right? And and the increase in extremes is a signal that sort of we saw a lot this past year is that signal gonna in is it your sense that the wetter areas are gonna get wetter? When they're gonna get wetter, and then in the summer we could expect literally in those same areas three months with no rainfall. To some extent, when I visit growing areas that have in in the tropics, for example, distinct wet and dry periods but constant temperature they you actually can manage things not so bad when when you have those distinct periods what i worry about is the stupid transitions between these areas that trips us up can you speak a little bit about those extremes number 1
1: yeah i mean I, you you hit the nail on the head we've seen these extremes you don't have to look past this this yeah. season or you know the last few seasons you look at something like hurricane harvey or or florence this past season where You know, it's like build an ark, right? An unbelievable amount of rains, an unfathomable amount of rains. Um, But you don't have to look very many... seasons back in the southeast where they got deluged by Florence or in the northeast where uh, San- you know, we were very dry. I mean, we're very dry. Yeah. I mean, even think of this season, you know, starting to go in June, July, uh, we were talking about drought every, every you know, Thursday morning. That's what it was. And I remember one week I went away on vacation and and the skies just opened up and we no longer were talking about drought, but we had, you know, measuring rain in, in tens,
0: of the, tens of inches up here in upstate New York. And we have good data that shows these extremes and let's just make sure everybody understands what we're talking about when we say extremes. Obviously there there are normals 30 year averages sure. 100 you know the records of the rankings of the places but I'm assuming when we have a 30 year average of sorts when you say there's extremes it has some deviation from that average yes sure, that's
1: exactly what it is right so if I'm if I'm building something if I'm being a, building a system to convey water to prevent flooding right I'm I'm not building it for average conditions and I'm actually probably not building it for the record condition too because it would just be too much money to do that so I'm making Making some kind of judgment to say I'm I'm willing to have this thing fail once every 10 years or 50 years depending on what the value you're trying to protect is and what we see are those things changing and that's where infrastructure becomes a lot more important because we're using data from the past to say oh I don't want I'm going to build this thing to protect it for the 50 years in the past when the 50 years in the future are going to be extremely different.
0: And when we look at those extremes uh, from a temperature and a moisture perspective, um, we used to call those things, especially moisture, 100-year storms, 200-year sure. storms. I don't hear those terms bantered around as much. When that 40 inches hit the Carolina coast that I know you're a frequent visitor of, uh, when that 40 inches hit in the 36-hour time frame, w- what the heck is that a f- – Five hundred year yeah. storm? You can't engineer a system to withstand that. Yeah.
1: I mean you can if you look close you can see that people have, have put numbers on those. I think for the Carolinas I saw something on the order of a thousand year storm. Hmm. I, I have to admit though, those numbers have a have a lot of wiggle room, right? You you've never seen that before, so you're 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 doing some things with statistics and trying hmm. to kind of judge the the recurrence of something like that. But you know, it does put it into perspective, I think, quite well.
0: So let me wrap up this segment with uh, another practical question. Like I put you on the spot last time, what would you tell the person in the Midwest? Let's go to the Mid-Atlantic, right? And you had 66 inches, record rainfall, right? Um, I'm sure the golf course superintendents in this region, in regions where you have to brace for these intense rainfall events and keep people going, there's going to be two big questions that are going to come up from every golf course. One, of course, is drainage. And I'm sure I heard you say, you shouldn't just say what just, you're not sure you want to plan for 60 inches, but maybe you better plan for a few more than you're currently planned for, right? And then start to have a plan for implementing these things. Uh, but then you might have discussions about cart paths that, that if you can't get carts out, maybe you ought to invest a million bucks uh, in moving the cart paths around. What kinds of time frames would you tell them? Is that 20 to 40, 2040 to 2050? The kinds of things that these landscapes. Should begin to start thinking about now.
1: I think that's when you start to see things occurring more consistently. But in the meantime, you're going to see, you know, it's not just going to be a, a switch that you're going to you're going to you know turn on and off in 2040. But you're going to see a change towards those. So you're going to see more and more of these events occurring now. So. I think part of that is you have to factor that in, what's the risk and the tolerance and what you have to do now. But when you do do something to do that, you might, again, not just look at the past and say it's this, but I have to say I'm expecting 10 percent or 20 percent more in the next 10 years. So kind of build that into your design.
0: And if the climate assessment report does anything, it builds a consensus about how people should plan for the future. Is that ultimately what the bottom line is there?
1: definitely is. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, yesterday, my day was kind of Actually, two different calls, one with the city of New York kind of saying, how should we redesign or what should we do with our, our sewer systems to avoid flooding and overflows? And the other was with the state of New York to say, how should we start to think about our dams and, and what we have to, again, so kind of two different extremes there, right? For the sewers, it's, you know, you know hours of rainfall and, and, and small events that they want to prevent for the dams. It's, you know, they're the, the risk is bigger. So you, you want to make sure you're not making a mistake there.
2: Golf Corps superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you. There and gone before you know it. Dryject the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses and amends in one pass visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center
0: noticed a shift in the amount and depth of frost in the ground? Because this also has big implications for us from a turf perspective, right? That, that, That if you can really get some deep cold temperatures, there's pests that are creeping north like nematodes, these very microscopic worms that I know you're familiar with that we think are becoming bigger problems further to the north. A lot of it is because they're surviving the winter better. Uh, is this one of those winters where – or are we, let's go back to the pattern. Is there a pattern of less and shallower frost throughout these areas? It depends
1: where you are. You kind of talk about those transition zones. If you – move pretty much south of, say, maybe the, uh, I'll use an east example, the New York-Pennsylvania border, we actually see a decline in the level of frost in the soil, the freezing soil mm. and things like that. If you go level further... depth? Depth, right. Yeah, depth or actually even frequency. Um, as you go further north, say, northern New England, northern parts of New York, um, you actually see the opposite. You actually see an increase. And the reason for that is because you don't have the snowpack. The snowpack is a nice blanket. So as the snowpack declines in those regions, you, you tend to have more open areas in the wintertime and, and therefore you can have more frost in the soil. It's not as protected by the snow. Kind of in the sweet spot, maybe across central New York, you actually see it quite variable and it's really depending quite a bit on on whether you have snow on the ground or not. And, and that's the transition.
0: And thanks for- bringing up the snowpack because uh, I've had a number of guests on the show over the years that are from the West and and I'm one of those people particularly in the Northeast where we really don't think a lot about irrigation uh, because we usually get our butts covered with uh, rainfall but now we're getting these prolonged periods of dry weather and we realize how ineffective our irrigation system is or maybe how flawed our decision-making system might be and so the use of water now is coming under more scrutiny and so I look Look west, And when I look west, I see my friends in California, Mike Huck has been a regular guest, uh, monitors irrigation and climate in the west, Patamon talking about water and droughts and fires and groundwater and surface water. Looks like a big snowpack out there this year. Is that one of these extremes that we're going to get a big snowpack and then nothing for five years and then a big snowpack or am I wrong about the snowpack? um
1: I think what we see this year in the snowpack it's been an active season for for one reason because it is a, a mild El Nino. Um, winter, so again, we, there are these natural variations in climate that affect the weather year to year to year.
0: Regardless uh, of the whole climate change
1: warming set scenario. It's superimposed upon climate change. So again, these ideas that every year is going to be drier or wetter or, or warmer or colder than the next isn't it, right? I, I use an example in my class where it's like a dog walking on a leash, and, and it's these things like El Nino, even though the person might be walking in a direction upward, the dog is free to go wherever he wants. And, you know, this is a case. It's an El Nino winter. We have an active Pacific storm track, and when that interacts with the mountains, it's actually good. It gives you that snowpack right where you want it.
0: And so climate change does what? Amplify or damper?
1: Uh, in terms of, of those patterns, I, I'd In some cases, it amplifies it, um, but I would say in this case, we're really not, it's still just superimposed. I don't see anything in the literature that really says more El Ninos, less El Ninos.
0: But when you have an El Nino, is it an amplified El Nino? Um, I don't know
1: about the El Nino being amplified, but the the manifestation of the El Nino, one of the things, you know, as the atmosphere in the ocean warm... Mm -hmm. um, There's more water that's able to evaporate out of the ocean, and the air is able to hold more of that water. Mm. And then, when you get a system interacting with the mountains or something. That water gets wrung out, mm-hmm. and therefore you have more water to work with. So mm-hmm. that's even in the east why we see these big rainfall events in a lot of – actually in all cases, um, because there's just so much water vapor in the system to work with because the world is hotter. You know, Think of a pot on a stove, mm-hmm. right? So that's the raw material, and it eventually gets wrung out. And we see that as rain or snowpack in the West.
0: So it behooves us, it seems to me, if we're going to have these extremes and one of the more precious resources that these dry areas have, or now maybe even the Northeast is, prolonged periods, we're we're going to rely on our storage capacity. How big are the climate guys out West working with the state of California to try to figure out How much storage they need because they obviously, I mean, my stupid you know turf way of thinking is, man, you want to be able when you have a big year, you want to be able to store it all so that you're good for those few years. How big of a deal is that for our climatology guys out west?
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge deal because in the West, again, they've they've they're what they've done in the past is. There's not that big of a need to to have reservoirs and things like that as we do in the in the Northeast because the snowpack is the reservoir, right? The water we might hold in our reservoirs through the winter is really
0: what they're holding in the snowpack. Well, the and winter. there's dams out west, right? There's, there are the Hoover the Dam. There's
1: got to be dams, sure, right? Sure, but I, I'm saying there are. But uh, even that, a lot of those systems are are packed are, are fed by the snowpack, so it's really the snowpack is the thing that's acting as as we might think of our New York City reservoirs or our boston reservoirs right. or something like that
0: so how are the reservoirs i mean one of the things we I mean, we hear good news about reservoirs a lot of times so even in california the snowpack sure. being really good we don't hear a lot about groundwater resources and maybe that's a good place now for us to to start to transition uh, and closing up is is Moving forward, golf and water are going to be intimately tied. Um, A lot of golf courses rely on groundwater resources, even out west. If you have access to a well on your property, you're not paying that exorbitant feed. You know, the million-dollar fee you may have to pay if you're getting it from a different source. What's climate doing to some of these groundwater resources?
1: Um, same type of thing. I, I guess the problem with groundwater is we've evolved that we want to get rid of as much water from the surface as possible. We want to move it away. You alluded to that kind of earlier in, 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 in what we were talking about. Right. Uh, that's the worst thing for groundwater, right? We want it to stay on the surface. We want it to mm-hmm. infiltrate the surface, right? It, it needs it needs time to absorb in the soil and, and get to the aquifers. But yet we convey it away in systems that we build and and basically dump it out into the ocean. So that's a different way of thinking as well, particularly in the in the east. Uh, let's say, and I'm not saying when we have things like like Harvey or Florence that we're we're keeping that around, but in in the more uh, typical summers, uh, you know, again, thinking of retaining water on site, giving giving water more time to infiltrate in in different areas that might not be high traffic or mm-hmm. things like that is is really a good way to go so that we have that water in the bank.
0: I got to think all of this gets exacerbated in urban areas, you know, as a couple of urban guys ourselves, right, working in an urban part of the United States where, you know, 85 percent of the population lives in in urban, peri-urban areas where we're paving everything, right? I got to believe a guy like you when asked about, well, how, you know, should we have that golf course there? And you look at all the pavement around I'm not going to – I'm baiting the hook as much as I can to see if I can – I don't think I need to bait it too much. But wouldn't you say with everything we've said that if you were in the community planning business, having a massive green space there uh, is a a good thing?
1: I I would think it would be a good thing depending on how it's designed and things like that, right? Anything that we can uh, retain water on the surface and allow it to – retain water on the surface, allow it to infiltrate into the groundwater – is huge. We even see that in the city. I think cities are starting to see that as well. We we talked about sewer design. Well, one way instead of building big pipes and things like that is to reduce the amount of water that gets to those pipes, so more green space, green roofs. That porous uh, porous, porous asphalt. Porous pavement. So, I mean, those types of things are, are probably good design choices. You might even talk about that with your, again, um, I'm stepping out of my area but you talk about cart paths and golf courses. I mean, is that an option there, again, to get that water into well, the
0: water? Well, here's the thing, Art. A lot of these uh, these mitigations are expensive in real dollars today um, we're predicting out what you described at 20 20 40 2050 20, is you know you're talking about 20 years from now uh, sometimes people you know we' just don't have that time scale sometimes to think about it and and I think when you when I hear us talk about these are the answers I recognize how few people are implementing those changes now And yet it seems like we ought to be implementing them in an accelerated fashion, and yet we're seeming to be deliberating. And I tend to be on the progressive side of things, but maybe there's an argument that we shouldn't sort of yeah. porous pavement everywhere because, well, then you're going to have a mess this way. What do you do to a person like me that wants to tell people you better plan for 20 years out and you better find those funds if you expect to exist at that yeah. time?
1: I think one of the things that I would say the you know, the, the climate change science or the climate change impact community has had a hard time doing is actually demonstrating kind of the cost benefit, right? So you say, yeah, it costs a lot to put this in and things like that. And I haven't seen enough work to say, all right, but over what time period are you are you going to see, are you going to recoup those costs? And I think that's an, an an important type of decision that needs to make. Are we looking for quick gains? And then maybe it doesn't make sense to do that because you can you can get those benefits in a short time. But if you're looking over a long time horizon it becomes Less and less and less of, of the right decision to to forgo those things, even though they cost more.
0: Um, now that you've said that, as we know, even in these areas with regular rainfall, that we're going to have likely profound dry periods. Golf courses are going to have to confront, you know, a one and a half to two million dollar investment for many of the deferred maintenance that hasn't occurred on their existing ex- uh, irrigation system to be more precise, to take advantage of the latest technologies, a million and a half, two million dollars, not being able to say what the cost benefit is is really the hard part for golf course superintendents to their membership. So help me out here, Art. What, what are we going to say? So,
1: you're, I mean, you're you're clearly going. I mean, uh, hopefully, other people who who know are more well versed in that than I am are, are listening to the podcast <laughs> and, and can kind of come into play there. Again, um, hard for me to judge what the cost and benefit of a, of a golf course is, but I know even in in some work we've done, even with this past uh, season. And looking at the cost of, of, you know, reduced member hours because of the rainy conditions and trying to have to document that for people that they, so they could go to their, you know, they could go to their um, you know, their members and things like that to kind of say, hey, this is why our budgets are down. I, I think as people start to look at that and start to collect more of that information and, and think of it in the context of climate change, that could be one way around that.
0: Always a pleasure to speak with Art D. Gaetano, and I hope you take some time and review the 2018 Climate Assessment report. I'm sure you'll find it thought-provoking, no matter your judgment on climate issues. Thanks for listening to this episode of Frankly Speaking.